You are now listening to episode 86 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis. This is my show. I am likely to change the name of this show now. I've grown tired of Doc Fermento. It means nothing to me. He is dead. I think I'm going to go with um, As Brian Discovers the World. All right, I'm going to release this episode with no music. This is uh, just a just the way I do it, a Skype call with my friend. Uh, in this case, it's my friend Nick Mailer. And uh, just uh, give a listen to find out what the what what be the content, what it is. All right. As always, I thank you for listening. Okay, well, how are you today, Brian? Um, I'm all right. Um, I watched a particularly um, not so great movie today. What uh, was it called? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, yes, that's Clint- one of those films mm-hmm. that is is. It's one of those films that I feel I should see because it's become such an iconic film, and of course the uh, theme, the theme music. Yes. And the, yes. But but. Yeah, I suspect that you're right. It wouldn't actually be a very good film. I'm I'm slightly allergic to westerns. I have to say, for some reason, they they just don't speak to me. Uh, this one is interesting. Um, the music is incredible. It it is mm. it's really something special. I I, it, I mean, now after forty years of this of hearing it, of course, it feels abused or trite yes. or something but um it, it is not it, it's not really its fault of course exactly yeah. yeah yeah but but the movie is uh not really watchable <laughs> <laughs> maybe you treat it as a very long music video it is very long movie so the, it would be an extraordinarily long music video <laughs> uh contrast with that we victoria and i went to see um the beginning of the year uh a 2001 A Space Odyssey at a cinema in London that was showing it on a 70 millimeter print oh. and we sat and we sat in the front row and it's still an extraordinary film to sit through and all that psychedelic stuff at the end that is probably quite tedious <laughs> to sit through while you're watching it on a television right. when you have a 70 mil print blasting it in your face it's, it's still quite yeah, effective. Suddenly makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So if anybody has a chance to see it, um, if there's a lovely, there's a, a site called in70mm.com, in70millimeter.com that shows you where you can see all these classic films oh, wow. in large in large format across the world. And uh, if there's something showing in your town, you should go and see it because we're living in the very last dying decade of the possibility of seeing um, film projection. So, don't you worth, th- worth a look. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that um, eventually, though, there would be a, a resurgence of large format film mm. since the, just the rule of excess, uh, you know? The, yes, uh, and to a degree there already is in that Christopher Nolan and so on are making films where the latest Dunkirk film was shot in film and he wants it to be projected as much as possible. The problem, however, is it's such a cumbersome process with so many moving parts that all need to be there the factories the processing uh, labs mm-hmm. and and then of course you need to keep all these huge old projectors up and running and you need to keep the huge old projectionists up and running to mm-hmm. know how to thread the damn thing that at some point 
one or two of those cogs will disappear forever in that big uh, global machine, and then um, they'll just be nostalgia. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it's not just a one-off project. You can't just no. uh, have a passion for it and release your own exactly. film. <laughs> yeah, okay. e exactly. Well, you, you could, or you, ben, you, know, you might set up a dark room somewhere where you expose a few frames, and then, well, where are you going to project it? And you're, oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I suspect there will always be some places where old prints will lovingly be shown like relics from a bygone era, but it'll be tough to see anything beyond that. It's quite funny. I um, took out uh, my, uh, my father-in-law's father's Super 8 film camera, 8mm uh, film, and I filmed some of my daughter's early first, you know, in her first year, I filmed some of her in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, and I've kept it, and I've kept the old projection, and I've developed it. And I think it would be quite cool to show her when she's you know, in her teens or 20s and say, Oh, yeah. You know, here's this, look at this, and you know, project it onto the screen and say, These are probably the only moving analog shots of anyone in your kind of class generation yeah, absolutely that yeah. that exist uh, for for you when you were a baby so i thought that would be a nice a nice little gift to give to her a little canister of uh, super 8 film i believe so and how long do you think the film stock holds up i filmed it uh, i used uh, black and white film stock and so as long as you keep that cool that will pretty much last as long as it needs to it's what they use for archival I film see. Mm -hmm. So it should it should be all right as long as it's kept stable and I'm keeping it in a fairly cool place. So it'll be it'll be fun for her to play with. But again, one has these ideas of what one's kids will appreciate, and actually she'll say, "Yeah, what? Who what? cares?" Yes, <laughs> but that's maybe, their job, isn't it? And then maybe it'll be her kids instead. Uh, you know? Well, yeah, actually, yeah. and they'll they'll find it in some box somewhere. And yes. say, oh my goodness, the what is this? The on their way, to audience got missed, but exactly yeah. as they're as they're on their way to uh, the next solar system or whatever uh, on the long and boring rocket drive, they'll look and say, "What was in yes. that old box of curios we bought from Earth?" And yes. they'll pull it out. Yeah, and you'll be nothing but a pile of dust. And of course, bone dust, yeah. and yes, we won't exactly. appreciate it. <laughs> no, that's the problem with this damn universe, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, oh, are we? Are we? Is this the podcast? Oh, this is it. Yep. This is oh, what right. I, this is what I do. Yeah. Don't 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 your listener want us to be talking about nutrition and food and fermented things? Uh, that's. Um, I think that's what they come in expecting. They never oh, get dear. it, and then many <laughs> just walk away. And then be, because there's plenty of people who will um, hit that um, hammer, that uh, that nail head uh, yeah. one, one million times and people mm -hmm. just cannot tune out. They, they must hear more and more <laughs> and more. And um, whereas I like to mix it in to I a one hour agree. conversation with you and 10 minutes about um, some thoughts you might have about a, a great way to. Uh, to achieve some nourishment yeah. in your life, you know. Yeah, no, no. I think that I I quite agree with that. And I, as I've told other people, my um, my friend John used to record a podcast for his gaming blog. So they would talk about video games and so on, which mm -hmm. don't particularly interest me. But I would listen to it before the times when that podcast went off topic and off track. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and. And I used to complain to him and I said, why did you bring it back to games? Uh, it was just getting interesting. So as you know, we then started our own podcast where we chose a topic and then promised not to stick, Never not, to ever, not, not to ever mention it, to do the inverse of that. Yeah, on I purpose. Have, uh -huh. I have listened to a great many of your uh, episodes. Yes, <laughs> yes it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It really does um, 
what's funny about it, I don't know whether you, uh, the same thing happens with you when you record podcasts, I basically can't remember anything a week later, really, okay. mm-hmm. that I've said within it. Uh, and then if I come to listen to one, usually by mistake, because I don't really like listening to myself, and I come to listen to one that I recorded a year or three years or five years ago, it's a very strange experience. It is like listen, you are listening. It's not like listening. You are listening to another person. Mm-hmm. All that person is dead. You know, m- almost all those person's cells are literally now dust on the floor. Mm-hmm. They've completely recycled themselves. Their brains have completely reorganized the memories uh, uh, and uh, and so on. So the degree to which that person is this person is very tenuous, and you really feel that palpably if you ever listen to old podcasts of yourself. And it's quite funny because sometimes you're sitting there listening and you're thinking, oh, that chap's quite clever. Or you think, mm-hmm. oh, that chap, that chap's a little bit silly, isn't he? Why, <laughs> yes, isn't he, yes. why is he saying that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's, it's, and it is that chap. It's not, <laughs> oh, I am. It, and the, the, the weird associative feeling you get when you hear yourself talking at some distance is, I don't know whether it's a healthy thing to do or whether it's a deeply psychically traumatic thing to do, because it's not something, of course, as a species, we have much use to. And I think it is yep. different than, than reading, although it's not that different. If you've ever read some stuff that you wrote while you were at school or before, if it's personal stuff or poetry or whatever, it can be a, it can be a fantastically interesting feeling, mm. can't it? Yeah, the, I'd say um, I... I've never heard it so well said as what you just, how you just described the experience of listening to yourself from five, six years ago. I mm. just uh, wholeheartedly, I, I feel every bit of that. Uh, and then with the writing, uh, while writing is where I've tried to be the most artistic, so to mm. speak, and that's what I'm most embarrassed about, uh, is reading yes. something where I really tried to be mm. artistic via writing, it's very embarrassing for me, and I've burned it all. There's no evidence uh, that I'm <laughs> aware of of my attempt at being uh, <laughs> a creative oh, writer. That, oh, that's a pity because you know it's people are always embarrassed about their juvenilia, so and so on. But <laughs> actually, again, because it's another person, it's not you really. You should just look at it as if you look at the naive mm. stuff of. Of literally another person, That's, and maybe yeah. what take, a refreshing take, approach. Yeah, I need to hear well, this. I, yeah, I, and I do that. I've I've read some. I found a c- copy of an old school magazine that I had. It was quite funny. Um, I was kind of desktop publishing it for the school that time, and so I was helping the the uh, the editor, she, and she was she was another pupil, and I kind of fancied her, so I said, "Oh, well, I'll help lay lay out the." Uh, the pages and so on. And so, of course, I just snuck all my creative writing and poetry into the creative <laughs> part of the magazine uh, and they were signed it anonymous. And one or two of them were all right, but uh, others of them were kind of clunkingly em- and earnestly embarrassed, you know, where, as you're a, you know, when you're a teenager and you think, yes. oh, I'm going to, I'm going to show the man. Oh, yes. Um, I'm going to show the man I know about uh, uh, exploitation and, and so on. I, I, one of them was quite good, though. Actually, one of them was quite good. It was about, um, about nostalgia, which I quite like because, of course, I read it and I'm now nostalgic, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, so you've not kept any of your writings then? I have um, nothing that I'm aware of, yeah. Really? I had quite a large collection of writings in um, notebooks and then um, 
I had a rather rough um, late teens period, uh, early twenties. Uh-huh. I mean, quite quite awful. Most I would consider it uh, semi to mostly homeless for oh a good, my goodness, a good many years there. And um, I had uh, uh, let's see, the all my notebooks ended up in a garage kind of forgotten the roof of that garage collapsed um in a storm oh and, it, my goodness. And, and it all got molded and destroyed and um i uh it did end up getting literally burned so <laughs> and, <laughs> um that stuff i would probably be more interested in reading because it those were me telling my tales of woe and misery mm-hmm. for real Instead of trying to be a creative artist, I think I got a little yes. more creative in my mid twenties. That, that oh, that's yes. the embarrassing period for me. Oh no! Well, yeah, I think that you're right. I think the earnest teenager you can put up with. It's the kind of the twenty year old who yes. thinks he's all grown up trying to find himself. That yes, yes. I would agree. I, there's probably stuff from that age. I'm glad doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah, there's a uh, time. For yes, exactly. There's a time when you should have known better. <laughs> and you're sad that you didn't yeah actually as as i've been talking i've just i transcribed the nostalgia it's a sh- short poem i transcribed the nostalgia poem and i found out where i saved it so i'm going to inflict it on you because remember what i find interesting about this is it was written by basically a teenager who was already dis- you know discussing what nostalgia hmm. thinking what nostalgia would be like mm-hmm. and and of course now it's multi-layered because one's nostalgic for the time that one wrote it but it's also a warning against nostalgia um uh, for 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 you i don't know if you hear the word uh before i read it there is uh, an image in it called pick and mix you know what pick and mix mm, is no mm. um basically in in britain there was a um a shop called Woolworths, as there was, and he's in America, but the Woolworths here would sell record singles and little bric-a-brac for the house, but it would also have this big uh, wall full of candy and sweets, and you would, like, in each in separate troughs, like they'd have some toffees in one, they'd have some filled creams in another, they'd have mm-hmm. some mints in another and chewy things in another, and you'd kind of pick and mix, as it's called pick and mix, you literally, you'd take bits of them and you'd put them all in your little bag, and they'd sell them to you by weight. And so this is called the pick and mix counter at the at the store. I see. Uh, is there any equivalent to that in the U.S.? Hmm. Where you'd you just have these kind of troughs of candies going up and down the store, uh, and you would just mix them little chocolates and I things, mean, and you'd mix them all together and pay yeah, for yeah. them by weight. I would say perhaps, yeah. but so long ago that I'd have to uh, do some transcendental meditation to <laughs> recover the memory. <laughs> and of course, and of course, you and I wouldn't go anywhere near to such things anymore, would we? Th- this is true. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I, you'll see why I had to. Uh, I had to mention it. Anyway, I shall. I shall inflict this upon you now, and then yes. we can discuss the notion of nostalgia. Because I'm curious to hear what you think of nostalgia as a whole. So I'll. I'll introduce it with what I wrote when I was a teen. Um, nostalgia. Nostalgia is a lonesome swelling, a boil filled with the pus of infected memory. We find wrongly precious. Mortality oozes its cruel celebrations of impossible return. Lancet. It splutters and smears like the salty tears from a shriekfully tugging toddler trying to pull an immovable mother yearning another selection at the pick-and-mix counter. But it's too late. She's at the checkout, turning one more mundane opportunity lost into another sour, falsely pleasant, bitter memory of little sweet used to be. Well, oh my, Nick, that's wonderful. 
I, I enjoy. I still enjoy reading because I, I think, think that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, now the thing is, what I found interesting. I was because when you're in, when you're, I think when you're in your teens, you're that's when you start to first actually kind of put a name to that strange feeling of wanting to go back. Um, mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. before you go to your teens, it's all you're always wanting to go forward, aren't you? I want to be yes. an adult. I want to put on lips, lipstick. I want to mm-hmm. do this. I want to do that. I can't wait till I go to the big school. I can't wait till I get to do that camp. Can't wait till I get to watch those movies. And then suddenly, at some point in your teens, you suddenly realize, hold on, hold on. Um, maybe I don't just. Maybe I want to. Is there a reverse gear on this thing called life? And you said, oh, there isn't. And then of course you start. Um, rose tinting everything that came before and you mm. kind of get into this and I felt at that point I, I, I remember whether it's a false memory or not uh, I think I remember uh, thinking to myself you've got to you, you can allow yourself small dollops of this but this is a, a honey trap you could really get stuck in so um, you know don't fall into it and don't assume that everything that came before was some nostalgic hinterland that you wish to return to. And yeah, I remember isn't that funny take, how, yeah. taking that moment. Mm-hmm. I remember that moment where I said, I've got to make a choice here. I'm not going to do that. And I, it's tough when you've got kids, though, isn't it? Uh, you, you, you have children, too, and you know that there, there, there's a, a, a lovely um, ABBA song called Slipping Through My Fingers, which I think was bastardized in the movie. And, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you're trying to savor every minute. And that's what the song's about. But even while it's happening, you feel it slipping through your fingers. Um, and you know that there's nothing you can do about that. That's, that's part of lived reality is that you can never, you can't actually capture the minute uh, and even the carpe, as many times as you say carpe diem, uh, you you feel that her- the horrific realization that next time you blink, yes. they will they'll be teens, and you blink again, they'll have left mm. home. Yes, kind of yes, thing. Yeah, and it's and it's 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 I'm feeling that relatively acutely at the moment because my daughter is moving from what they call infant school, which is you know when they're six and seven, to um, uh, junior school, which is you know after seven and. You know, when I, when I last blinked, I was changing a nappy. And when I next blink, she'll be doing her GCSEs and preparing to go to college. Yeah, it, it is really something. It's tough. I, yes, and I have three, well, all within three years. They're like uh, eight, nine, ten, basically. So, I suppose yes. that at least and that at least anti-aliases that feeling you know you get a nice blur it, it kind of blurs it because okay well i've got another one coming up in a, a year or so and then another mm-hmm. one coming up so yeah i have one uh, coming out of a phase one entering a phase yeah and then they're may, all on their own paths yeah. anyhow so it is very interesting and i but i also i revel in the universality of that regret and that feeling i like it that as a species, uh, we parents are all in it together, feeling that we're not having some unique moment of angst. It's part of the human condition that we should experience that and feel it and know it and and what and it's kind of wallow a bit in the premeditative regret. So that brings me some comfort because you know it's not a special hmm. yeah. isolated snowflake of a, of horror, is it? Well, you must um, you must know rather lovely people, because in my world, um, anyone who has children 
they are um, obsessively keeping them active in competitive sports, um, railing against the, all who would judge them, the opposition, <laughs> pure anger, visceral, you know, <laughs> just uh, evil spirits, and constantly filming every moment of their lives. And hmm. I see nothing but a lot of ugliness um, from most other parents, whereas I'm more... Um, I just leave my children be, and they do things. Mm. They 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 keep themselves occupied. You know, I, I I like the sound of it, and I think that's good. I have to say, I do fall prey to the occasional pushy parent motif, and I'll give you an example. Um, my uh, J- Judy's been uh, there's a a kind of music class called Color Strings, which she's been doing since she was very young. She was maybe. 18 months, two years old. And of course, it starts where they just listen to music and they clap and they sing. And it just teaches them kind of intervals. What was fun is that, so they teach them how to sing certain quite simple but important sorts of tunes from the beginning. And they, you know, they just sound like strange little um, lullabies or uh, nursery rhymes. Uh, and what they're actually doing is they're, they're, examples of certain things in music like some will be pentatonic others will be in five time and things Mm -hmm. like that but really simple little tunes and she's been kind of singing those and learning the rhythm of them and and, you know having fun not in a kind of horrible way it's just been a part of her you know she's with other children and they play together and sing them since she's been like 18 months and then at about five she started she she was allowed to choose an instrument. So she said, we kind of said, well, which in, what instrument would you like to try? Assuming you do, and she try and you know she was too small for the guitar and so on. But she found holding a violin was quite comfortable. Mm-hmm. So she got this tiny, t- tiny, tiny little violin, uh, which is unbelievably <laughs> cute to see them <laughs> sure. kids playing these tiny little violins. And now, of course suddenly you realize the point of all those songs, you know, oh, that works on the open strings, that's pentatonic, that does those feelings, and so she has them in her. Now, of course, I've got to be very careful to balance the pushy parent, you've got to practice for 20 minutes every day, or, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or the music Satan will come and throw you into the pits of Hades, versus the do whatever you want and then find out that she never practices and she allows it to whisper away and then she will regret it. Because uh, yes, I know yes. that Mm-hmm. Getting getting music early on and getting the ability to play something is a skill that I think people like to have when it's given them. Um, and of course, as a when you're a child, it's the e- like languages. I think it's the easiest time to get it. So I'm trying hard to balance, and generally I'm okay. You know, I'm trying to make it fun. And uh, I, I got my uh, again my my father-in-law's father this old violin, the adult-sized violin, reconditioned, and we kind of like to play duets together. And she was watching her a film uh, Trolls and this uh, Paul Simon's Sound of Silence appears on it in a kind of an amusing aside. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, Jews, why don't you try playing Sound of Silence and we worked out the fingering and then I'll play with her and play the harmonizing on it. So we're kind of both teaching ourselves violin, but there are moments, I have to admit, Brian, where I kind of, I kind of say, oh, Judy, your, your fingering is awful there. Why don't you, why, why are you holding it like that? Your hand is, you know, your, yes. you, it looks like you're hurting your hand. And then, and then you catch yourself and think, this is just going to poison the experience for her. What are you doing, you <laughs> stupid old man? Uh, 
there is hey you know wanting more and better and you know the best from our children is Mm. it's a good and evil thing it's you know how how you balance it right and it's and it's and it's tough when they actually are on the precipice of showing something special um because she she's left-handed which is interesting with a violinist because it means that your fingering is better but your bowing is more difficult mm. and she's and she's got a really good sense of pitch you know she really she corrects the pitch really well when she's mm. playing it and if she knows it's slightly off and so on uh, and a lot of the people that i've seen in her class even if they can produce maybe a nicer or a more articulate sound their pitch is nowhere near as good as hers so you're on that strange hinterland where you say, actually she's she could be quite good here, so I don't want her to waste it. But if I push it too hard, then that will be the very thing that happens. So you yes, but you some, to get some uh, to to progress, it it mm. does require that focused effort. A, a coach does. and someone who cares and is concerned spends the time to yeah. teach. That this is not um, like sitting around uh, learning a new language. If you if she were to move to Ch- were adopted by a Chinese family in yes. China. Yes, uh, you naturally start speaking Chinese, right? Exactly. But if she's exactly. filled with a room of violinists, she won't. Mm. She won't learn to become a great violinist. <laughs> no, and 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 I was discussing this with my wife Victoria. And I thought, do we, we don't care whether she's a great violinist, but the notion that she could just turn up somewhere, you know, to uh, you know, maybe at college or wherever, and there'd be a, a folk group or something, and she could just then join in and play play nicely and entertain herself and others that's a lovely skill to have isn't it just to be able to Absolutely. turn up and yes turn up and 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 make and make a party as they say i think that's 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 really nice the other thing that you mentioned was of course competitive sports and uh my wife in particular she had a bad bad experience at school where you know she really hated the kind of being forced and bullied into participating mm-hmm. in in whatever sports there were and you know there's the i don't know whether there's that cliche in american culture but there's you you, you basically have pe physical education and then you've got you you know teams where they'll break the class in half and half the team the class will be playing the other half of the class in football or cricket or hockey or whatever mm-hmm. and of course the, the 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 leader of the one team will then pick somebody from the class to be in yes. their team mm-hmm. and the leader of the team. And then you've got the, the one person who nobody's picked yet. <laughs> the last picked, man. Yes, yes. Yeah. So picked last in PE is a very kind of cliche trope. And, you know, she said it literally happened to her. So she was very opposed to, you know, competitive sports and forcing people to become obsessed by it and ostracizing others who aren't and that kind of thing. I had a not unrelated experience in that at our school they were for example obsessed with cross-country running and I and because my family were were runners and my father constantly ran he ran the comrades marathon in South Africa which is like 55 miles in the heat and that kind of stuff something I could never do Um, so he was trying to encourage me to run from a very young age and again he was beyond encouraging you know he would say oh if you don't if you don't run you this evening you won't watch television or if you do run you can have a coca-cola kind of thing and uh, and it was i found it so soul-destroying that that's it i hated the idea of running and then it became part of the you know the rebellion anyway oh i'm 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 i run on intellect not on my feet kind of snobbishness (laughs) uh and 
And so at school, I, I reveled in finding ways of not doing cross country. Uh. I literally hid, hid in a bush once uh, and then, <laughs> and then popped, out, popped out when I saw the other runners were coming past to make it look like I'd been on the track and uh, that kind of thing. Oh, my. But then there was a moment later on in life where I realized, you know, it's in my genetic destiny. My brother runs. My father runs. They seem to find running okay. Um, it's also, it can be as solitary or as companionable as you want it to be, which I quite liked. Mm-hmm. And it's also cheap. All you need is shoes. And if you do barefoot running, you don't even need those. Yes, so I thought, yeah. hmm. Uh, of all the things, I've got to do some activity because, of course, at that point, I was also very much a believer in the kind of you've got to eat less and do exercise mentality. So, well, if I've got to do exercise as I get older, so it's going to be this. So I can force myself to start running again. And the first time, have you, have you ever tried to start a physical activity yourself where the first time you do it, you actually feel like you're going to die? Absolutely. It's not a, not a hyperbole. A- absolutely. And quite recently, yes. And, and you get that kind of breathless feeling and you feel the pain in your chest and you start mm-hmm. wheezing as if you suddenly got asthma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, it was actually quite good to have some familial bullying saying, come on, push, push yourself. It will get better. And to be fair, it got a bit better and you could start, I could, oh, I've just run a mile. I've run two miles. It's okay. And I remember the first time that I ran five miles and I might as well have taken a trip to Mars. Um, it was something that I shouldn't have been able to do as an individual. It was written into my the code of my my very being that I'm not a person who can run five miles. It's just mm. not possible. Mm-hmm. So when I did it, and it was relatively easy, uh, I think that was a good kind of psychic moment, so yeah, to that's speak. That's wonderful, yeah. You you do uh, look runner-ish to me. You, mm. you look like you have a potential to run decently. Yeah, and I think, uh, and since then, I do it, and I do it every week, and, and we try, for, for example... Um, Today, uh, uh, I was uh, I, I was with my brother, and we ran, and he forced me to run <laughs> to to run um, a decent number of miles, relatively fast in the heat, uh, up and mm. down. Uh, up another problem is we're in North London, which is very hilly, and we so we've got these three big hills, and they were killer. And and I well, I'll tell you what made it worse is that last week I gave blood. So my red blood oh, cells wow. are yeah. not quite what they're there. Yeah, yeah. So so I so but then again, as I was feeling. I was really feeling it. I wasn't feeling good. It was almost going back today. And, I said, and then I said to myself, this is probably good. It's hormetic. So I'm teaching my, my, my mitochondria to be more efficient when there are fewer yes, red right. blood cells. So you, know, you can always tell yourself a you, happy you, tale, can't you? you can, yes, you can imagine 50 different uh, processes by which you are healing or helping yourself. Yes, long term. Yeah, right. And I, and I have to say the one thing, and it's kind of interesting that I never, ever think of it a forethought so when i go on a run i think oh, i don't really want to go on a run or i do or it's okay or but i never think one of the reasons you should go is that you'll feel really good afterwards it's like you you, you I don't do, think of the run as yes. high but but afterwards when i'm sitting there and i've got it and i'm relaxed in a in a way that's quite different from any other feeling of contented relaxation you have in your life you think Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So and then does, it resets. Hmm, how does this work then? I, this is really puzzling to me. So, uh, for anyone who has participated in um, some athletic, adv- you know, venture of any sort, and you know you feel better 
afterwards mm. or even yes. or even midway through even if it's just yes. practice all of yes. a sudden you're really in it and mm. all the hormones are flowing properly your your mm. oxygen all these things are happening just as yes. it should for a human and you're really feeling amazing right and yet yes. the the future prospect of that feeling never seems to be quite the motivate the motivator Whereas, no, right. whereas, let's look at a drug or alcohol. Yeah. And you would say, "What are you doing that because you know where you're going to end up in 30 minutes? Do you know what I mean? Like, what is the yeah, motivating no, I, driving force there? I agree. And it's, it is very different. And I'm glad that you, you, you agree that um, th there, is, there is a difference between the two, actually. Because I think there clearly is, and that that kind of exogenous and uh, endogenous uh, way of getting your endorphins clearly makes a difference in how you um, perceive them to after they've happened. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I genuinely don't know why that is, but in a sense, I do like it because it comes as a nice little surprise every time. And and it's 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 funny. There are times where. It doesn't matter whether you're feeling full of pep and vim before you go or whether you're feeling tired. You see, sometimes I say to myself, I'm feeling quite tired, uh, fatigued or whatever. And then you go and then you kind of, it's kind of like you've, you've, you've earned that feeling of tiredness and fatigue once you've done the run and it then feels more appropriate. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you say, ah, now I feel tired, but I can because all the hormones are around me that allows me to enjoy that feeling of tiredness. So it turns a kind of harsh and brittle tiredness into a smooth and soft tiredness, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so that's another benefit to it. But the, the point about all this is, of course, um, I then had a conundrum because I said, I don't want my daughter to either fear physical activity or to feel that horrible overpressure into doing it. Mm -hmm. So well, there's actually a, a little club that she goes to on Saturdays called Multisports, which she's been doing since she was quite young. And the kids, there are a lot of kids her age there and some really nice people who, who are running it. And they don't just focus on one game or one sport every single week for two hours. What they do is in that session, they might do four or five different games, some of which are semi-competitive, like uh, capture the flag sort of games, others of which are introducing them to new games like hockey or golf or archery or mm -hmm. football or whatever, and then others which are just individual kind of little challenges, and some of which are just funny team-building party games. And they cycle all of these every term as well. So, you know, by the end of a year or two, they will have tried dozens of different activities. And then what they can do is they can think, well, actually, I really like that one. Or I didn't like that one. And mm -hmm. it's kind of, again, we're back at the pick and mix counter, you yes, know. Yeah. I thought that mm -hmm. that's a nicer way of, of doing it. And they always, they kind of give, they give student of the week uh, prizes and they win a ball or whatever. And, and what I like is the student of the week is very rarely the one who's kind of won the most points or been the most show-offy. It's the one who's kind of just enjoyed themselves the most <laughs> or has yeah. or has, uh, or has really been trying, even, even if they're incompetent, they've yeah, really yeah. been trying or they showed some new sort of flair or whatever. And 
she I think she really she's getting something out of that. So I think that's a nice way of doing it. I, I, I really think that forcing your kid to spend all their time doing an activity you may not even know they like or are competent at yet is kind of torture, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I, I like the approach of what you were just saying there. Um, so what mm. you have is a you have play with yes. rules. Exactly. Wonderful. And some of the, the best yeah. play involves rules. Uh, and you're right. And if unless you you're alone. Watched, if you're alone, you have rule-less play. If oh, you no, have, I, 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 I yeah. disagree. Well, I, I, think, I think we're really good at making our own oh, arbitrary even internal then, yes, rules. Yes. But I mean, in order for several people to play together, rules yes. are required. Otherwise, chaos and hell breaks loose. And if yeah. you've ever watched any ki- any kids playing spontaneously together, you know they can be unbelievable little fascists with their rules. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and you know you get so it doesn't, and you end up saying it doesn't actually matter. You know, and like, yes, it does. How dare you tell me it doesn't matter in my world? These this is this is uh, this could mean war. It <laughs> is fun ab- to watch. That. Absolutely brutal mm. with the rules. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You are not permitted to speak. You didn't raise yeah. your hand. What? Yeah, Where yeah. did that come from? You know. <laughs> exactly. No, you're right. And it's really interesting to see how these things evolve in groups of children. And you can see the ones that are going to become politicians and the ones that are going to become sociopaths and the ones that are going to become businessmen. It's uh, fascinating to watch. I think my daughter's career path is pretty smart uh, from what she's laid out to me so far. Uh, she's nine. Uh-huh. And the way she explains Gosh. it is that um, she will work in... Um, in wellness, health and nutrition, but okay. not but not with sick people. Okay, no, that's no, 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 that's fair enough, and, um, uh, and that makes sense. I told her then you'll probably have a very happy career. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> she wants to work in wellness with well people, and I. Well, I mean, well, yeah. I think that's a good idea, you know, and, and helping well people remain well should really be the uh, sine qua non of uh, medicine. Of course, it isn't. Of but course, it right. should be. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's quite profound, really, of her. But yeah, she if <laughs> if she if she if she finds a position that she can do that. Uh, while we're while we're talking about um, wellness and uh, medical quacks, um, I love that uh, on Twitter today there were you mm-hmm. you mentioned there was a a vegan doctor who saw a plate of. Who, Post about how we saw a plate. Yes. A plate. I didn't actually see the tweet because the, somebody had blocked me such that I couldn't see the originator. A plate of meat was, yeah, was tweeted a, or something, a and he stack said, of steaks on a plate. Yes. And of course, this vegan doctor who spends most of his time trying to pretend to be completely disinterested in the true sense of the term and just an a dispassionate observer. And I've sifted through all the evidence, and I happen to find that my faith is nuministically correct and veganism will save the earth will save everybody's hearts and lungs and brains and uh non and tumor cells and so on mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, also it's morally better and mm-hmm. it's uh, superior for the environment and i just happen to have found that through deduction yes but then today and maybe you can narrate what he said after seeing this plate of meat and it just popped out and i thought that was very telling well his the truth was revealed all- Everything about him is revealed mm. in a very simple tweet where yes. he said, I just vomited in my mouth. Yes. That's, that was his entire tweet because he saw a plate of steaks. Yeah. So just therein, you, you, you can just see the greater picture 
And, yes. and, and so what I reported on Twitter was that um, I made up a fake quote, you know, yes. uh, meat disgusts me, therefore, you know, meat is poison for all of the population, you know. Yes. And you see this and I often, think yeah. I think you're completely correct. And we, we've evolved, obviously, very strong uh, feelings of disgust, which have served us well. So we avoid putref- putrefaction and so on. Yes. And... Mm-hmm. And uh, we use it to form uh, kinship and to then help to bond our kinship. We reject the other and we disgust responses come in more or less. And so, so it's been a useful evolutionary trait. But we, we try to pretend that it's not going to be a part of our um, deductive thoughts. And every so often, something like that pops out. If, if we could give ourselves a disgustectomy... Mm-hmm. I think a lot of things that we find puzzling uh, in politics and nutrition and so on would disappear. You know, the the hate, the 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 peculiar hatred of gay people. I was in just religion. thinking this is what's this yeah. is what's simmering in the back of my mind while you're talking. Ex- exactly. I, yes. Mm-hmm. All of these, all of these things would would float away uh, with him. Though with the vegans, it's not just, well, it's visceral disgust. And I use that term uh, advisedly because it's to do with the viscera. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I was talking about this uh, on another podcast recently. It's about recognizing mortality in a way that you cannot cope with, bodily mortality. Somebody made a really good point about the differences in, in symbolism over the ages between plants and and animals and their consumption and the the different sorts of mortality that they represent what do we bring into our houses in winter as part of the ancient uh, symbol of renewal even though there is contingent death we bring an evergreen plant don't we uh-huh. a tree a christmas tree yes it, it, that's what plants are good at. They produce constant uh, regenerations of themselves. Uh, they, they, there is the ebb and flow of season, and they somehow, through it all, can nevertheless, even with ones that are not evergreen, can get, can attain a certain identity throughout it all. So even if you kind of really, in reality, the individual is rotting away, it's the individual's petals that have dropped off, the leaves have dropped off, there's something about the identity of that plant that remains. With animals, of course, you don't have that the luxury when you kill something and you butcher yes. it and you eat mm-hmm. it and you see its viscera. You, that's you don't. It. You don't get to save its seeds. Se- you do not. Yes. No. Right. And 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 you look at that that plate of steaks. You know he uh, he realizes he is just a plate of steaks himself. And I don't ah, think he can cope with that. I don't think he can cope with that. I think that's wonderful. I love this take. And then yeah. I'm thinking, do you know the Neil Gaiman book, American Gods? I know it, but I haven't no. read it. Okay. So I'm thinking a little bit about that at this moment. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the old... This book is about the old gods and the new gods. Of course, yes. And it's a, a weaving of the story told on the soil of America. So yes. it's a, it, it is one of my favorite uh, fiction books, for undoubtedly. And, okay. um, I shall read it then. And uh, 
So this idea of the old gods, see, they required a blood sacrifice. Pretty much yes. every single one of them in one form or another. Yes. Uh, this this real and permanent sacrifice was required, and there was mm. no seeds saved. This is the no. real deal. This is uh, final and eternal, you know. Yes. And I love the way you've you've put this together for me now. I'm thinking about this. And whereas with Whoa. the plants, uh, we can save the carrot seeds and yet devour the carrot. And then and, there's just And even more when carrots. the whole forest burns down, it regenerates itself, Yes, and it, it comes back. Yes, it's eternal. Now, yes. I, if you like thinking about that, again, I discussed this elsewhere recently, but think about the story of Cain and Abel, the very first angry murder mm-hmm. ever, apparently. Um, uh Cain was a, a farmer, a grain farmer, and Abel was a pastoralist or a, a hunter-gatherer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Abel hunted. He sacrificed one of his animals to God, and the smoke went up. God liked it. And God was pleased, right? And God yes. was pleased. Yes. Abel took some of his crummy wheat yeah <laughs> oh you had to spin it your way yeah okay <laughs> and he uh, uh, and he uh, and he said go on then god yes. have Here have a bun yes and yes. god said uh, i smote the or whatever <laughs> not not god said uh, yes. not so much not thanks so right. very much yes. uh mr new farmer uh-huh. uh i'm i'm not conned by this stuff and of course what did he do he he killed his brother he killed the the hunter-gatherer, the pastoral character, and isn't uh, that, out of rage. And isn't that the continual story of humanity? There, yeah, ever, but, ever thereafter? Anyone living that, um, either yeah. nomadic or yeah. herdsman or a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, is always the wild, which represents evil, which represents yes. yeah, the uncontrolled. But nevertheless, but nevertheless yeah. which you suspect is somehow more connected to what God or the gods actually want. What they actually wanted and that, from us. Yes. And, and that infuriates the the crumbling, bone-lower stature, uh, indentured farmer, because he remembers in the back of his mind what he had when he was a hunter-gatherer, and he knows that the bargain, as Jared Diamond has often pointed out, is not what people will often suspect it mm-hmm. was. So... and. You know, it's 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 interesting. It uh, as John Durant has talked about, the whole of the, the first bits of the Bible are effectively a working through of our moving from being um, hunter gatherers to past nomadic pastoralists to you know fixed farmers. That's what the stories are all really about. Hmm. It seems to me it it follows entropy as well. Uh, oh, of course, we are going into into uh, how do you say it just continuously falls apart and the harder we yes. try to salvage all the ends and all the scraps and scrape it together mm. and make these seeming mm. improvements or the worship of foreverness yes we're we're dooming ourselves doubly it, <laughs> yes. it, just just living for the fact that we know that we are surrounded and encompassed with with death seems to be a much mm. more wonderful place than this mm. worship of the forever seed and mm. deathless existence of agriculture, you know, industrial agriculture is, is yes. the especial 
you know, especially yes. evil, evil. Yeah. And, and it gets back to that, uh, what I said earlier, that, that reveling in the feeling of it slipping through your fingers. It's exquisite in both pain and joy, that isn't it? Knowing that there's nothing you can do to prevent it. And even your enjoyment of it, it flitters away from moment to moment. And the very act of trying to grab it makes it flow ever quicker. Um, mm -hmm. It's... But that is, that there is the exquisiteness of life, isn't it? Yes. I would, so I would like to picture in my mind uh, a funeral held by a culture of carnivores versus a funeral <laughs> held by a yeah. vegan community. Uh, how I, I would like to just play in my, with my mind for about a half an hour on that and picture how yes. it might play out, you know? I think that's a fascinating notion. And it's so easy to, you know, go on Twitter and pick on vegans. But actually, they are fascinating because there is something about them which allows one to uh, throw into relief one's own opinions and beliefs and so on. And you see something there that thinks it's so life-affirming. Yeah, literally, it affirms all life, but it's actually so alienated from the reality of living, yes, um, yes. from the fact that we we are all preying on somebody else's temporary removal from entropy to try and uh, keep us uh, in this fragile equilibrium that we find ourselves, and the notion that the notion that um, that 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 veganism can somehow uh, exculpate you or extricate you from that cycle is fascinating. And you you say something to them like, uh, "I'm quite happy that uh, I shall eat others, and then eventually the worm shall eat me, and that's yes. it." You know. Yes. yes. But uh -huh. that's it. We're 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 all kind of uh, library books of the earth on very short loan. And uh, that's, that's, that's. I'm sorry if you if you have a problem with that, then uh, mm -hmm. do find do 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 go and find another universe. But uh, until, <laughs> until uh, then, I wish yes. you the best of luck. But until right. you do, I think if if you don't come to terms with that, you're going to have many more problems than um, throwing up by looking at a pile of steaks. Yes, uh, and, and and you know, and another uh, and approach, I, another approach also with the just say take two uh, extremes your carnivore or your vegan and look at it as a, a strategies for success okay so both of them are intolerant to some degree of course uh, they are the in intolerant minority say mm. now let's look at what's the, the the thing on the carnivore end is that it is accepting of the others of the of yes. all the other things and if the greens fall upon the carnivorous plate they shall be consumed if mm. there's room yeah or if one desires so it's open well unless unless yes. you're amber or hern of course in which case you don't eat anything green this this is fine but i'm saying for <laughs> yeah. everyone then it is a choice and it of is course. allowed okay yes. so you have intolerance you have the minority and mm. yet so you have massive constraint and yet wild freedom you're you, you have a lot yes. of room here then you have the vegan um extreme and what you have mm. there is prohibition yes prohibition against meat prohibition leads to uh, massive problems uh, for sustainability and for success mm. for not only an individual but for groups at large 
Yes, and you're arbitrarily yes. uh, limiting the number of strategies and the network effects that you can have between those strategies mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. within your life as well. And I think that can cause substantial problems both in an individual's own psyche and throughout a social construct. Yeah, all, all there is is failure. There's, mm. there's very little upside. There's very little um, high success. There's, there's no way to grow up with that. Um, whereas there's just um, horrific, massive failure where you could literally feel like you, you, you've disgusted yourself because you've consumed meat or you've made a mistake. Yeah. Now you are evil. Now you're you've, a sinner. You've fallen. Yes, you've fallen from the you know my, of God. You know my yes. notion of the, you know, the car, carnal and the carnivore are very closely associated. Sins of the flesh in all senses um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are clearly there. And, it's, and, and so it's how have we taught uh, women to maintain their purity? Of course, well, of course, uh, when, when they show anything that reeks of the flesh or indeed yes. of the fleshly, especially that the blood that they dare waste every month, um, they need mm -hmm. to feel shame for that and hide it from us because, you know, it's very much that man who says that when he sees a pile of steaks, he, he, he throws up. Does, when he when his daughter starts menstruating, yes. does he throw up as well? Right. How how could he be an MD? How can he perform surgeries? He, and here's the funny thing: his yeah. his money, his 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 income is bariatric yes. surgery. He literally oh cuts goodness. people apart and yes. restructures their um, gastrointestinal system to Unnecessarily. lose weight. Yes. Yes. He's to operating unethically, surgically, and to, with yeah. his stupid uh, mm. disgust leading his morality and his yeah. dietary advice for all people. I think he's punishing them. I think he is enforcing a kind of ascetic bulimia on these people because they need to be punished for their gluttony. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Uh, and it's that I don't think that's too extreme because, of course, mainstream advice is, as we know, stop being a slothful glutton, you reprobate. How dare you? Mm -hmm. And unlike we who have self-control and yes. are good Protestant workers. Those with you, the power of moderation yes, are, will ascend to heaven. Yes, uh, exactly. And the the ability to control yourself within very, very tight parameters is the sign of somebody who's on the upward path. And it's, it's, it's fascinating that people do believe this and it's the narrative that goes throughout modern nutritional advice. And however they try to, um, to fudge it, it's always what lies behind it. And what's quite dangerous is that even good people who are in our community who know that it's to do with hormones and to do with the fact that if your brain isn't seeing leptin, your, your brain thinks you are starving to death mm -hmm. and you are therefore doing the rational thing that anybody would do. You are constantly eating because your brain is telling you you are starving to death. Anybody whose brain is telling them that they are starving to death will take every opportunity to eat because they are functioning organisms. You would do it. I would do it. Anybody would do it. Mm -hmm. Those of us who think we've got self-control 
are simply people whose brains don't happen to have that alarm light always set on because it's yes, deaf to the uh, to the leptin. Every non-coke addict mm. is um, not susceptible. They are, or they are of stronger will than the mm. cocaine addict, right? It's yeah. the same. Yeah. It's the same thing. And I think it's just a that fallacy what, to make the argument. Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. And but the problem is that sort of notion does lie, and and it and it can. So I'm talking about no, no, you know the communities that we wander around in, mm -hmm. you have a more enlightened attitude, uh, you know, starting with people like Gary Taos. People, are, um, people are, are slothful and greedy. Uh, if, they, if they don't get fat because they're slothful and greedy, they are and act slothfully and greedy because they're fat, because of the thing that caused them to be fat. And I think that's yes. more and a more enlightened way of looking at it. And the problem is, though, even very good people like Dr. Ted Naiman, um, he's recently started saying, well, you know, if you're a bit too tubby, maybe you don't want to be eating so much fat, you know, mm, yes. cut back on a bit more protein, a bit less fat, cut back a bit, and suddenly the calories in, calories out is coming out again. So you, need to, you need to control yourself. And he may be you, doing uh, this just to uh, have a larger audience. Yes. That's and, what and that I, is. I don't know if he would one-on-one -on -one with an individual, yeah. If if in his heart of hearts he wanted to give the very most, the, yeah. the most important and, and perfect advice to an individual, if that would because be what he would because say, because he's he's superb yes. in every other respect. But the problem is, I've seen so many people who start off superb and then fall back into these fallacies and then become increasingly mundane, and then they just turn into them again. Uh, we there is one um, Doctor Bill Lagakos who 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 is similarly slid into mundanity over the last couple of years and it's really sad to see because people who start with this promise get pulled by these tropes and by these uh, sort of hidden assumptions and semiotics and so on and my ambition is just to make sure that people are conscious about them and so maybe won't fall prey to them mm -hmm. quite but, so but this cause, vehemently. This is why you get blocked a lot on Twitter though. That's, I do that's get blocked a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It is, and I try to. You're not allowed to mention these, these obvious facts. You can't bring this to the table. Um, it, no, you, you just you have to go away. So they just um, stop you. Yeah. And I try to do it in a way that I think is kind of being humorous, maybe a little sharp, maybe a bit sardonic. But I think a lot of people read it as hostile, hostile and I need to yes. and I need to moderate my my bedside manner so and be a little bit more I'm Socratic. Yes, as as an observer, um, yeah. as I'm hearing it from both ends, I'm friends with a lot of uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of enough. communities, and I hear this a lot. That well, uh, how could Nick not imagine why he's being blocked? I mean, just look at his behavior, you know. And I'm like, yeah. well, I always think he's funny, and mm. yet I, I see uh, people. I've I've, I've come to the yeah. conclusion that uh, well, do you know what? If I actually went spoke to said even word for word. Mm -hmm what's written out there and we were just sitting in a bar together mm -hmm. i get away with it and i get the point there is something quite alienating about ascii as i call you know as i generalize it but any any text on yeah, a quick screen yes. that just mm -hmm. screws and you you will have noticed this yourself I've, I've got people that i email even colleagues and you can get in some unbelievable bitchy little uh, email threads and yet you meet them in person and you're fine Yes, it is amazing the power of the missing um, winky eye smile. If yeah. you leave out that little smirk, 
then you know that is required if you're if you're Mm -hmm. even hinting at this is humorous or this is to be taken a certain way you have to include that stupid three character little winky smile thing i do i i I, I sometimes feel dirty doing it but i know look if i don't do that i'm gonna get in trouble and you're in trouble and and also if it helps sell the message if it helps clarify why why not have just hit the three little keys there right you know the the here's the problem and i suddenly realized why my I don't know that I too sharp with people or too sarcastic or sardonic or I, I realized the issue my father was a lawyer my mother was a lawyer I've got a family of lawyers and so at the table hmm. you would basically be cross-examined I was going to say you had an <laughs> yeah. argument to present huh yeah all the time yeah. complete cross-examination you made any case you made any clause you said anything how what you're doing at school and you were cross-examined as if you were in the dock now because that happened for us, that's normal. That's that's our normal familial discourse. And you know, if you observed, you think, "Oh my God, these people are going are to mad. kill each other." Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but actually, it's multi generational. You know, apparently, you know, my my dad's mother, mother and him and the rest of them were the same. And there's these unbelievably, you know, loud cross talking and sarcasm and probing and so on. And for us, that's just okay. Yeah, that's that's familial discourse. That's fine. That's, that's called a dinner. Um, whereas hmm. I can see that mm-hmm. if if that's presented to somebody anew, then it can be it could be horrifying i guess yes, and I actually the so, first yeah. time mm-hmm. the first time i i met my in-laws and there was this kind of weird politeness at the table and i found that very uncomfortable isn't that something yeah and one thing i noticed listening to you and john i don't know if this is an mm. english thing or i don't know british I'll thing just, or i'll just i'll say is that but that's you, my friend john who we uh, record yes. a podcast with and i've known for many years yeah you, carry on you two insult and argue for an hour at each other, you know. Yes. Often to the point where it, I cringe. I'm listening mm-hmm. here and my shoulders are tight and there's a pain in my neck. I'm not <laughs> used to that type of talk. Maybe a little bit of uh, elbow nudge, nudge the guy, my bar, my barmate, you know, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. like that. Not at that level. I, I, I'm not familiar with that at all. I, I've never we, heard it. I've never heard people talk like that. We have... Um... I think there is a difference between British and American culture. Americans are actually, I think, generally more polite until they shoot one another. Yes, yes. It just goes to 10. Yes. It, whereas... It, it's level you know, one and two, and then boom, death. Whereas mm-hmm. whereas Brits actually, for, for all their reputation for politeness, if you look at them and hear them in the bar or whatever, there can be some real kind of... Um, call each other unbelievable names and it's kind of almost if somebody's being too polite that's that's rude that's the rudeness because it's it's a bit like the difference between saying usted and tu and uh-huh. usted is supposed to be respectful but actually if you go around usteading someone in just the right way you are saying you are not my peeps uh-huh. and it's the same sort of thing there's a certain uh way of interacting which is different and i think sometimes even within business more of an in-group thing 
Where if you in- if you can all insult each other, then that's your in group. But could mm. an outsider from your community come into the pub and talk to you that way? Uh, that would, no, uh, yeah. if an outsider came and did that, then I think it would be dangerous for them to do that. Right, but, right. But they but they could make themselves part of the in group relatively quickly if they followed the right the right rituals and well the way they would do it is they buy everybody around and then they'd there be in the, sure. then they'd be in the in group but yeah no the way i speak with, with with john is is interesting because actually you know we've known each other for like more than two decades now and it was <laughs> these days our conversations are very mellow compared to what oh, really? they used to be mm. oh yes and uh, but the interesting thing is i mean john said really there is now, we know, there is nothing that we can say to one another or could ever say to one another or would mean that we wouldn't be friends anymore because yes, we've done it. You've crossed every line at this point. Yeah. Slowly, we, subtly, we, aggressively. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but because of that, that means that we have a profound honesty that's been forged over many years and the, the ingot that remains is very, very solid. And that means that if I tell him something, whether it's a complaint or whether it's a warning mm-hmm. or whether it's a compliment, that can mean a lot more than it might be from somebody who's a little bit more fair weather about it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, uh, and we've got a number of rules that like we've got the no false modesty rule, which you've had for, for decade now. Oh, where we is say, this the humble brag or fake humility? Is yeah. It not no, I love this. Yeah. False good. modesty is not permitted. If he thinks he's done something good and he's proud of it, he has to say so. Just say it. Yes. And ditto. Uh, there's no, oh, well, actually, you know, um, you might quite like this. I don't know. Um, I lost, I lost a friend over this. Really? What happened? A friend, a former friend when I was new to the ancestral health community. This is a brand new thing for me getting involved in Mm -hmm. a community. And I had made several friends and some of us became Mm -hmm. rather good friends. And we started communicating via Skype and new technologies. And Mm -hmm. we were putting together some little distant uh tight-knit group right and um one of them had launched a project and we were so proud for her and she uh so boldly announced that Mm -hmm. she was humbled by her massive success (laughs) and i just wrote her a private message saying um please uh, just refrain from using the word uh, humble or humility you're showing none (laughs) and um she wrote me two pages so of hate filled t- uh, terror just telling me i came from a low and dark place of a dark mm. with a dark heart and and uh evil intent and mm. on and on and on and i said it, it actually gave me it released me from the group i realized this speaks of what's really going on behind her. This is a woman who must live in a lot of pain. And I actually felt a little bad and yet relieved that I never had to deal with her again. And so from that moment up forward, we were never friends again. But That's a really interesting story, yes, because it it does, and it suddenly, a mask gets pulled off and you you see the reality of her age. Yes, if you let people uh, attack you, they'll, they'll reveal... They'll reveal mm. something. You just have to be patient and wait for it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I've never had the strength of argument. Um, I've never been a student of logic until recently. Actually, it was some a lot of your work that led me to study logical fallacies, um, uh, arguments, um, and you you actually led me on a course of discovery just just following your Twitter, um, listening to your podcast and things. So I do thank well, you for I'm very- that. Yeah. No, and I'm and uh, oh no, it's nothing, dear. It's nothing at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I'm glad about that because actually, the thing that's clearly missing in politics is the ability of not only the ability of electorate and and consumers of politics to identify fallacies, uh, but the ability of frankly politicians to know that the electorate is going to identify fallacies and to up their game to at mm. least use a good quality sophism. You know, I'm not asking for honesty and I'm not asking for bold logic. What I'm asking is for these politicians to play the game well like the old sophists and to learn rhetoric and to <laughs> yes. give... Yes. To, to hey, Look, you're going to be a bunch of corrupt bastards anyway, so at least do it with a bit of flair. <laughs> what depresses me about yes. uh, politics uh, in, in modernity in both the US and the UK is the banality of these people. Uh, Theresa May, um, when she was standing to be Prime Minister again, kept on going on about how she was, she was doing this election and she was promoting strong and stable leadership. And then she kept repeating it and repeating it yes. and repeating it and repeating it and it became a joke but she Talk couldn't about the stop the law of diminishing returns there and she couldn't yes. stop yeah. repeating it <laughs> yeah. and and it became embarrassing and obvious and even when she was challenged and said you've been repeating this she still ended up slipping back into it and you thought can you imagine a roman politician falling into that trap he would have been the laughing stock he would have had especially when it's not especially when it's not playing out in reality especially when it's getting worse and worse and then of course she backed out of going into any of the debates which of course is always a sign of strength isn't it (laughs) my gosh so uh, uh, so so again i'm not asking for moral purity i'm just asking look i want to see some good gamesmanship here at least (laughs) you know if we can't have moral purity in politics then at least let's let's be aghast at what they achieve in rhetoric and then let's arm the populace to parry those rhetorical flushes mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. a good understanding of critical thinking so i think understanding the different forms of fallacy and playing fallacy bingo is great. So you say, so you know, you, you teach a kid at the young age, okay, what fallacy is that one? Now, now that that politician's giving that speech, is that the undistributed middle? Oh, no, look, there's an ad hominem. Oh, okay, look, we've, um, <laughs> there's a two cock. Uh, yes. And you, just, and you just carry on. And you, I think gamifying that sort of thing within school, uh, within schools as part of lessons, would have a profound effect on pretty much every aspect of their citizenship whether it's the latest uh, uh study that's reported on in a newspaper about how uh, saturated fat will kill you after all mm-hmm. or whether it's a politician going on about why they're not supporting single payer uh, if if imagine if the populace as a whole were able to deconstruct that into its uh, fallacious uh, fillets and feed it back to the politician as soon as they do it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Then politics, politicians and politics at large get better. They improve. Exactly. It becomes right. an iterative process by that very parrying. And then eventually, 
some actual the necessity of some actual truth will seep through because that'll be all that's left to <laughs> to volley. Yeah. There'll be nothing left to volley. Every rhetorical flourish will be done with, and you say, "All right, it's because I was bought out by Big Pharma. What are you going to do?" <laughs> We're so far removed from anything uh, like that currently. Everything is uh, oh hell, especially if you're anyone who's in the health and wellness mm. game or follows the communities. That's uh, it's it is crazy looking at um, from where, from whatever angle you look at. If you know a little bit about something, and then you know a little bit more about something, and then it becomes your realm of broad expertise. And I think you and I can say that uh, ancestral nutrition and uh, the broad scope of what causes uh, industrialized diseases is an expertise. I'm not going to be falsely modest about it. Um, and mm -hmm. so then you look at the reportage that goes on about this domain of discourse and you look at what the, the individual um, kind of acute experts like MDs and so on have yes. to say about it and you realize, oh my goodness, this is where we're swimming in a soup of fallacies and barely understood information at the very pinnacle. And I think what must it be like in other realms? You know, this happens to be a realm that we've become obsessed with and are focusing on. Mm -hmm. It must be like this in other realms when people then, you know, other things that we might read in the paper and just think, oh, yeah, I guess that's just reportage then. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine people who are really, who really understand or interested, you know, sort of um, gentleman amateur interested in a particular realm and then realize how it's all pounding sand as well is there anything yeah, yeah, that our species yeah. is currently doing that genuine that <laughs> genuinely is based upon the truth and expertise in a way that's huh. go that's profoundly progressive in the true sense yeah, of the word progressive a, i don't know yeah it's a very hot meme right now this um there's almost this worship of expertise on one hand and mm. the refutation of experts on the other and there's this yes. bridge area where you need to sort it out you you mm. one extreme or the other is neither is right or wrong and you no, need to right. understand when what is an expert a general practitioner or mm. md is not necessarily an expert in your personal health okay no. they may have an expertise in something but mm. generally speaking they do not possess much expertise at all, especially today. An MD no. or a general practitioner is not a much of an expert on anything, you know. Yes, exactly. Except which script to write that is the yes, correct exactly. prescription, so that they do not get sued for um, underprescribing, yes, uh, or falsely or you know incorrectly prescribing yeah, yeah. And, and they are and and you're quite right in there therefore and that's acting they're acting rationally they're not stupid people that's the rational way to act and they don't perhaps even realize that the whole basis of their art and their science is caught in a paradigm paralysis as as uh, thomas kuhn called it in that uh, the their 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 science and their understanding is not allowed to progress because it's been caught by confirmation bias by the influence of uh, pharmaceutical companies and their uh, political uh, serfs and so on and but of course they can't see the wood for the trees because this has been the basis of all their learning from the day that they went to college mm -hmm. uh, and so they are immersed in it. For them, there is no color blue because all they see is sky. And right. I think 
and and whereas we, of course, who just have have been have been staring at red for all our lives and then blink up, we see blue very profoundly, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not because they're stupid or they're blind. Uh, and I think that's why so many people in this realm, in this uh, ancestral health realm, in this the the alternative hypothesis realm, have been they've been physicists, which was what Gary Taubes was, and is there they have been um, engineers, they have been programmers, they have dabbled in philosophy and languages. Very rarely have they themselves been doctors. Even somebody like Ted Naiman was originally an engineer. Bernstein, of the, you know, the famous type 1 diabetic, he was an engineer originally, I think. It's very rare that you find a pure MD or a pure doctor who gets the light unless he's been very lucky to have somebody from Some the other realms something. Yes. Mm-hmm. To, to point him at the big red spot and say, stare at that and now look up. And he goes, oh, right. oh my God, you're right. Either that or they've been on the game or they've been on the point for a long, long time. Um, mm. uh, uh, the author of uh, Protein Power, um, Michael, yes. Michael Eads. Michael like Eads. Him. Yes. Yeah, the, yes, exactly. And of course, it's quite right that plenty of mavericks are just wrong and crazy. Oh, sure. And so mm-hmm. our... And yeah. so our um, being different uh, for the sake of being different or for attention or... yeah, You can be devastatingly yes. wrong and, ha- and but, her harmful too yeah but of course if you think about what has been most successful about evolution particularly evolution um by uh sexual selection it has been the weird mutations and wild cards that suddenly get thrown into the mix now 99 times out of 100 these mutations, these wild cards, these uh, bolts out of the blue have been deleterious and the, and the individual has died or the species has not selected for it. Mm. But every so often, that little throw of the dice becomes the game changer. And yeah. without these mutations and without these throws of the dice, none of evolution would work as effectively as a system as it has. And these people, these weirdos, these mavericks, these uh, prophets, whatever you want to call them, um, it is necessary that 99 times out of 100 they be quacks and wrong and ridiculous and risible. But it is also utterly necessary to progress that they be there for the one time when they are the only individuals Mm. that can actually cause that progress, can cause the paradigm Uh shift. It's making me think of something else also is the dominance hierarchy and that the weirdo, the um, outlier, the taller man, the crazier man, the mm. bolder, wilder man will ascend, will ascend a dominance hierarchy. Other men would donate their wives to that man. Mm. Um, that's just the way it works. That's why you have these um, sycophants, right, of these... Yes of these crazy people and these people ascend mm. this hierarchy. This is interesting. And that, and then long-term over the millennia and the eons, this mm. has an evolutionary effect. Uh, I, think so. and I think so. I think so. And, yeah. and, you know, you just look at somebody like, you know, whether it's Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan or um, uh, anybody else, uh, 
You're the, talking about people whose we can chart their DNA over the course of time. It's like yeah. still existing, right? Yeah, you can't say that they've been yeah. <laughs> genetically unsuccessful. <laughs> right, uh, right. And now there have probably been, there have been plenty of proto madmen, plenty of proto Genghis Khans, plenty of these people, which you know they they get snuffed out the first time they begin their obnoxious ascent. Yes, uh, but perhaps thankfully, yeah, and maybe no, all, not very, often enough, yeah. Yes, exactly. But it's it's that horrible notion, and again, I think it's a bit. It, it one would be a bit vegan denial to deny the necessity of that within our species. Our species is not all about cuddles. Um, I'm afraid we the, the 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 thing that makes us most upset about our species is also what has unfortunately helped to propel it to the very greatness that we enjoy. Nah. Uh, let's take it. Uh, and okay, what are we talking on? And we can now we're talking on the internet, the ARPANET designed by, by the military, people, <laughs> by, designed by yes. people who were profoundly influenced by the notion of nuclear extermination mm. um, and an arms race. And all that is bellicose and troubling about our species. And yet, it's quite possible that something as crazily out there as the internet as it is, even when you get down to the TCPIP protocols, would ever have evolved in a veganish species. Yeah, in some utopian society, there would be yeah. no no resulting internet. No, or yes. and and perhaps no resulting mass in B minor, no resulting trip to the moon, of course, and all those things that make our species so exciting. So. so you know, you can. It's cliche there's to say. No, it. There's no bittersweet chocolate in Utopia. No, and <laughs> and that's and I think this that is what perhaps annoys me, for want of a better word, spiritually about vegans. It's not the reality of the impossibility of their dream. It's that what they're dreaming for is a kind of. Um, I don't know, a, 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 a mass stupefaction of the whole species, of a kind of lobotomizing of the very thing that makes it interesting to have been born into our species, I think. And, and, and that's, I think, what it's, it's kind of, it's, it's aesthetically offensive for want of, for want of anything yes. else. Yeah, even if you wrote out their, their dreams and hopes and wishes uh, you wrote it all out, it would be like the most boring, like if you just wrote out their utopia, it would yes. just be the most boring science fiction novel ever written. Yeah, well, actually, you, it, it's interesting um, you say that because you are, um, I'm just, I'm looking at the exact quote now, so forgive my typing on my clackety me mechanical <laughs> yeah. keyboard, um, uh, but you're echoing Nietzsche, actually, um, and what he he really 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 despised mm -hmm. Jesus and the New Testament. Um, he he really, you know, he thought it was such a kind of simpering, confused, uh, bizarre sort of uh, wish fulfillment that was actually quite tasteless. So I'm going to huh. uh, 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 let me. Let me see if I can actually find where he, because he and he sort of he says let let's compare the uh, 
uh, the the old okay the Old Testament with the New Testament and for everything that's barbaric in the Old Testament, um, at least there's a pulse, there's a there's a there's a life there. And so he says, so here's what he talks about, and he says, um, uh, let us see. Yes, in the Jewish quote, Old Testament, this is, this is from Beyond Good and Evil, the book of divine justice, there are men, things and sayings on such an immense scale that Greek and Indian literature has nothing to compare with it. One stands with fear and reverence before those stupendous remains of what man was formerly, and one has sad thoughts about old Asia and its little outpushed peninsula Europe, which would like by all means to figure before Asia as, quote, progress of mankind. To be sure, he who is himself only a slender, tame house animal and knows only the wants of a house animal like our cultured people of today, including the Christians of cultured Christianity, need neither be amazed nor even sad amid those ruins. The taste for the Old Testament is a touchstone with respect to great and small. Perhaps he will find that the New Testament, the Book of Grace, still appeals more to his heart there is much of the odour of the genuine, tender, stupid beadsman and petty soul in it. To have bound up this New Testament, a kind of rococo of taste in every respect, along with the Old Testament into one book as, quote, the Bible, as the book itself, is perhaps the greatest audacity and sin against the spirit which literary Europe has upon its conscience. I've always enjoyed reading that. Oh, that's a, that is amazing. I love this domestication aspect the yes. the domesticated lawn it's sex, <laughs> it's sexless that's a michael yes. pollan thing actually is about americans and their lawns americans love lawns because it's sexless and that, that was something funny. he said which i found amazing because he doesn't normally say uh, much of um no that really strikes at my heart or my sensibilities other than just uh, just uh, nice and easy, uh, you know, that's, someone you can nod along with, you know? But you know what? You know what? Mm -hmm. That's fascinating because usually that goes against some of Pollen's other tropes, you know, you know eat, eat food, mostly plant, not too much. That's the sexless little lawn haver, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's almost yeah. the opposite mm -hmm. of his usual trope. He's suddenly well, revealing he found, something. We found one thing that disgusts him, and that's the American lawn. So then exactly. he gets a little bold and courageous with his wording, you know? <laughs> no, but it, it, it's interesting. I, mean, I sometimes see him even on Facebook posts and people talk about their lawns and and say, please don't spray your lawns full of uh, toxins that are going to kill all the bees and the dandelions and so on. I find a perfect manicured lawn a very depressing thing indeed. I love a lawn that's got all sorts of weeds and I've flowers seen, and things I've growing. I've seen pictures of your back lawn. Yes, it's that's my uh, yeah. that's ideal. That's like ideal for me. I'd love to just lay down in there. Um, oh, it's lovely. Yeah. Yes, and in America, that's um, actually the... <laughs> the state, let's say your local municipality, city, will send a lawn mowing crew and they will mow that lawn. So they'll say, look, um, then they if just you send get, you the if, bill. If you get yeah. sick, yeah, if you get sick, uh, screw you, but damn it, your lawn's going to be well. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. you, may, you may rot and die alone in your home, but we will mow your lawn for you and just bill you. It'll be on the law, yes. Like, like, like veganism or the Christmas tree, the lawn is the shimmer of perfection and immortality that the reality will uh, never reveal. Have you, 
Have you spent much time staring and trying to find the perfect Christmas tree? Do you, do you, do you and your wife do this? No. Okay. Well, no. for us, we, I've seen this my whole life. We, we go to these parking lots at the mall where mm. it's black top everywhere. And then they have all these pre-cut trees there and people mm-hmm. will spend hours finding the most symmetrical, perfect tree. Mm. It is uh, something to behold. I would oh just go, God. I hold my hand up to get the approximate height I'm looking for and grab the first one and drag it out of there, you know, yeah, uh, which is uh, unacceptable. Which is, but- you bring it home and uh, there's a hole in one side where there's a lack of, um, of foliage here. There should be more branches. Can we pull some down or like, oh thing my is, God. No, but the thing is, though, that I, I learned a little trick. Um, I suddenly realized the scam that sort of design agencies have, they realize that it doesn't matter what an entity looks like. Familiarity breeds respect. So you get a terrible logo that's, you know, breaks all the rules of design or whatever and it's just offensive to the eyes. But you repeat it enough times yes. and people accept it and then it becomes genius. And I think it's the same for many things. You know, that Christmas tree, um, you decorate it right and you have it in your room the whole time. By the end of the season, the whole family will have great affection for it and will be happy to have it rather than any for, other. For every other, for every year forward, you know, forever, yes. The same yes, decorations, and, reboxed, repackaged, yeah. reused. Uh, and and then adding value to them, saying that they're heirloom because you've mm. used them twice. Therefore, they are a part of our family. They'll, you'll see a little uh, ornament. This is a part of our family tradition. No, it's not. It's Fair a enough. piece of shit from Sears hardware store. But it's both. It's, it's both. It's, it's shit. It is. It yeah. is profoundly both. <laughs> what a world! You know. Yes. Mm-hmm. What a world! Oh yes, I suppose it is. Well, for now, anyway. <laughs> Shall we? Oh, we yes. have to talk. Um, we have to talk uh, food, nutrition. Uh, uh, here's some mm. advice: um, okay. boiled egg test. Boiled egg, no salt. If you feel like eating one, you're hungry. If you don't, you're not. Go do something else. I like this. This is good. There you go. Yes, and um, try um, some intense, um, high intensity training of whatever flavor you like. If you want to go do mm. some boxing, Brazilian jiu jitsu, some yeah. su- supremely heavy lifting. Uh, mm. Even even moving yourself around in, in quite an aggressive manner, uh, str- yes. tax your muscles a little bit, mm-hmm. and then um, see how hungry you are and f- feel how well you rest. It, it's yeah. it's uh, it's amazing. You you won't have to think about it. It will strike at your like a deep recesses of your mind and your heart. It'll just come through. You'll you'll suddenly realize hunger and you'll suddenly realize restful sleep. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about restful sleep. I better tell, give Judy um, a good night. Do you want to say yes. good night, Judy? Say good night. Night, night.